whatever else is bonus. Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. And I'm David Staples of the Evans Journal. And I'm here today with the Roos. McCurdy, you finally came into focus there. You were a little fuzzy there for a second, but maybe, maybe who knows what it's going to appear like. How you doing, Bruce? Well, from the inside, I'm plenty fuzzy. It's Monday morning, for goodness <laughs> sake. But uh, actually oh, today, partying I've, all weekend, already, Bruce. I've already been out, done my walk, home for a 10 a.m. podcast. I didn't want to be walking in 30 degrees or whatever the heck it's going to be later. And so... Uh, uh, here with bells on, rare morning podcast. There, there you go. This is my game day mug. I only use it, use it when the Oilers are playing. So all season, every other day, I've got it going. But in the playoffs, it gets or after the Oilers are out, it gets consigned to the back of the cupboard. But I thought podcast morning time, why not uh, dig it out and talk about a little uh, hockey? Indeed. And there's things to talk about. Today, we are going to talk about a number of topics, as uh, Doug and Bob McKenzie used to say. We will dig into keep, hold, or fold on three Oilers players, Nick Bugstad, Derek Ryan, and Devin Shore. We're going to look at the Oilers' defensive scheme as compared to the defensive scheme that Vegas used, and we're going to try to figure out which one was vastly incredibly, unbelievably superior to the other. Hint, Vegas. And we are going to um, dig into some of the possible signings for this summer as well. All right, Bruce. Keep, hold, or fold, Derek Ryan. Uh, I'm in the keep camp, but uh, keep at the at the right price, uh, which despite his uh, second straight fine season for Edmonton, I think has to be diminishing. He's now 36 years old. Uh, and last year, last two years, he got half a million dollars over this uh, cap minimum. And as we've seen uh, coming into increasing focus these last uh, summers, particularly, it's those marginal dollars above the cap uh, that they're really trying to shave as much as they possibly can. And so uh, uh, Ryan at uh, 1.25 last year, he had to win a head-to-head battle with Matthias Janmark uh, for um, uh, to win a job out of training camp because there's only room for one of their salaries. They both made the same. So I see him. He says he wants to finish his career in Edmonton. I believe him. He's a, he's a, uh, um, he, there's reasons why he would want to for sure. And uh, I just think the the Oilers like him. He's a good fit. Uh, man, he was so good in the playoffs, David. I can't tell you how many times I started. I started monotonously repeating, "Get pucks deep." Every time, specifically, Derek Ryan left a puck behind the goal line in the other end of the ice, whether it was a deflected uh, rink long path into the zone or whether it was a shoot-in by him, or whether it was a carry-in by him while his mates changed behind him, and then he left, you know, once he was finally ridden off the puck, he would make his change, but the puck would be 200 feet away from any trouble, over and over and over, very reliable. And he scored 13 goals. So, yeah, sure, bring him back. I just think they're going to have to find a price closer to $1 million as opposed to, 1.25, maybe even on the shady side of that, David. And 
you know, as I do, that the jobs are getting tough for older players like Derek Ryan. And just to get a contract at NHL money is um, is great. And in some ways, the best contract to have, if you want to play in the NHL, the best contract to have is NHL minimum. If I was an NHL GM, I'd offer Derek Ryan 1.3, 1.4 million yeah. based yeah. on his play last year on a one-year deal. I don't think the owners yeah. can afford that. Yeah, but if well. I was looking to improve my team, mm-hmm. like if I was the Chicago Blackhawks, I think bring this mm-hmm. guy in. Like, man, he can play. Because he, Bruce, in the playoffs, yep. in terms of um, hockey IQ for Oilers forwards, I would say there's three players who stand out as being exceptional at this point in their careers. And I would say one of them is Connor McDavid, who has become a strong defensive player. Um, and, you know, offensively, he's he is what he is. He's the best player of his generation by a mile. Um, but defensively, he's also become a strong player and showed that in the playoffs this year. But the other two that stand out, people who can execute whatever game plan is in place, mm-hmm. they understand it, and they can execute it, and they can make it work. A lot of players can't make I've come to realize they can't make, if there's a game plan that really stretches them, they can't make it work. It's just not, it's not within their toolkit. It's not going to happen. But Derek Ryan and Matthias Janmark, I think whatever system the coach wants to play, they'll figure it out. They'll get it done. They're kind of like, I think, I think Chris Russell was in that same category as a hockey player um, with that ability. Um, anyway, uh, I just think uh, he was outstanding in the playoffs. I think if the coach had been, the coaching staff had been super proactive, they might have moved him up to play on the second line um, yeah. instead of Kyler Yamamoto. I mean, Yamamoto did get bumped down um, or playing with McDavid because he was doing everything right. I mean, shift after shift after shift to the point where when the owners had a lead, which all of us knew they were going to give up, right? When we were watching those games this year and the owners had a lead in the playoffs, we knew they were going to give up that lead. And the only, the only guy, the only guys who I liked out on the ice in that, at that time was any line with Derek Ryan on it, essentially. And, um, you know, he would carry his line forward. Clem Costin actually was also really strong two way. Warren Fogel was as well. Um, and they were off. Um, Costin wasn't so much a line mate of Ryan, but Fogel was often, I do, I do think, I do believe. And um, they worked well together. So I'd like to see, based on their playoff play, all three of those players back. And I know that Fogel and Costin are expensive and Ryan could be, and it all comes down to money. But uh, I think it's an easy, easy call for the Oilers. You know, the interesting thing, Bruce, is there is a potential riff. This is a, this is a side issue in the, I, I see in the Players Association when you have the salary cap. Mm-hmm. And, um, the superstar players are so valuable in a, in a, to a hockey team in yep. terms of winning games that the money, yep. you'd have to look at this over time, how the salary cap is, if the top, let's say the top six on a team, if more, if a higher percentage of the cap is gravitating towards them or not. I can't say for sure if that's the case or not. Yet I think you'd have to do an in-depth study of the salary cap. But you, I could see a day when the bottom half of the NHL rosters even maybe the bottom two thirds of the roster say we want the minimum salary in the NHL to be something like a million dollars below the league average or, or something like that. Like really get, really get aggressive about it. 
maybe all get the same player age. Like it would take a player agent or two who represents a mm-hmm. lot of these kinds of players. Right. And because what, what right now the narrative is, oh, there's so many good hockey players in the There's so many good players kind of at the AHL tweener level. You know, you're lucky to get a contract. This is very this is a very interesting narrative. And I wonder, is that true, first of all? Because uh, what I see is lots of players who can't play in the NHL playing on bottom lines, who, who leak in bottom pairing defense, who leak goals against, who aren't any good at all. And But it could be true. Maybe there is this huge glut of players, but it's also a very convenient one. If you want to shift, if you're hoping to shift all the money to the top players and not pay the bottom guys anything but dirt. Right. Anyway, that's... Well, I, no, I, I don't know what the truth is, but it would be worth studying and it would be worth the player agent who's representing a lot of these guys to start mm-hmm. thinking hard about this issue because mm-hmm. they're going to start earning, it could right. be, they're going to start earning league minimum, uh, the vast, like a minimum. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's very much turning in that direction. I've, I've been tracking it with, with great interest this year and I've written about it several times in terms of the, the, the stratification of the salaries. And the Oilers, I mean, the Oilers are an extreme example in that they're all either 10, 5, 3, or $1 million players. Like it's sort of right within that range. And they got nothing between one and a quarter and 2.75. But here's a question for you Warren Fogel makes 2.75. He's a good player on the bottom six. Uh, he's got one more year to run on that contract. But how much better of a player is he than, say, the three guys we're going to talk about today, all of whom make a fraction? Of of uh, yeah. of what uh, Fogel does, it makes more sense to to find useful one million dollar players and and spend apparently uh, on contracts and try not to blow too many of those big term big money contracts because those are the ones that'll that'll kill you. I'd I'd trade Fogel before losing Costin and Ryan if I was the GM of the Oilers. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's what 100%. I would do. So. Um, so you can and, afford you know Costin and Ryan see. for the same price as Fogel, easy. I'd have to actually, to, for me to believe this is like we're both, I'm putting forward a theory here. I don't, I'd have to see the numbers over time to see if more money's going to the top players. And actually, like, as someone looking at this league, I don't, I don't have a problem. However they want to distribute their money. Like, they're the right. GMs, they've got to figure it out. Whatever makes sense, you know, they're just dri- driven by market forces and the, and the, NHLPA contract. They're just doing what is rational to them under those confines. And I don't have a problem. Like if one guy, three guys make almost all the money and the other guys are making a million a year, that's, if that's what they've worked out between them, mm-hmm. that's their business. It's really not my mm-hmm. business. I, my, but I would say I can see though mm-hmm. a potential fracture in the NHLPA over this issue. Mm-hmm. If the fringe players can get organized, which is highly unlikely. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not just hockey, David. I mean, you you look at the uh, at the cast credits rolling at the end of a movie, and you draw a line below the actor on the list who represents not, that's more than half the money paid, and it's either the first one, or maybe the second one, or certainly the top three that would make more than all of the other uh, listed actors in a movie. You know. <laughs> And often, Bruce, they're worth it because they're well, the ones who sell the yeah. tickets. Like Tom Cruise is, we're getting into a little philosophy here, but Tom Cruise sells the tickets or Mark Wahlberg sells the tickets. Mm-hmm. Now, if they don't sell the, if they don't, if it doesn't make a difference, then you can put in anyone. And what they find in some mm-hmm. productions now is you could just, if it's a strong enough script, yes. just put in, just put in nobodies. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this is all driven by the market and, yes. and it is what it is. 
and this, but this is really driven. This is a tightly controlled kind of contract worked out mm-hmm. through collective bargaining. It's not yes. like it's not like uh, actors' uh, wages. This is actually decided by the players and the owners between them, and they they can work it out. So, whatever they work out, uh, I'm glad. I like a cap system. I'm good with that. But it's I I just wonder if some of these guys at the bottom end, like Derek Ryan and Yanmark and they really got pressured. Like I say, sometimes the NHL minimum contract is the one that's going to get you called up. I mean, Dmitry Samarkov last year, he made 775, which is now the new minimum, but last year the minimum was 750. Samarkov was basically cut right out of making uh, the team out of camp because he made too much. 25,000 over the, they had $165 left by the time they were done. And there was no way to fit him in there. A guy like, uh, you know, they, they had other uh, cheaper players to fill the last one or two spots to, you know, to just barely come under the threshold. So. And the owners are lucky. Like Connor McDavid could have got the maximum. He, if he had asked for 15 yes. million, whatever the maximum was, at the was time, yes. he would have received that. Yeah. Anyway, it's a tricky thing. It's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, labor agreement that they have a way of uh, mm-hmm. spreading their resources. And Let's, in fairness, neither side saw uh, the, you know, it was always expanding, expanding, right? The yes. cap was going up, 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 up. And I think was it in 2019, 81.5 million. And it's now finally going up. Another one million to eighty-three point five four years yeah. later, Everyone and all thought it those, would be ninety million. Yeah, and all, there was going to be room, always a little bit of new space at the top to add uh, to add uh, salary, and instead we have sort of this this um, it's just constriction of movement, and it uh, you know the you can't transplant the into a larger pot because the pot's still the same size even as your 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 actual plant is growing and it's got nowhere to go so they have to cut corners i mean they've got they've made these commitments on the long-term contracts and the bad contracts seem to stick around and the really good value contracts always seem to expire at the end of this season and now how you replace it and that's where that's where the orders are at Nick Bugstad, Bugstad, mm-hmm. keep hold or fold, Bruce. <sighs> hold is not an option for an unrestricted free agent. Uh, I'm going to say fold because I think he's the one that's go- that's just too high priced for what the Oilers can afford. Uh, and I like Bugstad. I liked all of the um, all the boxes he checked. You know, he was a great big, huge guy. He was right shot. He could take face-offs. He could play. We never did really see him play wing. They used him at center. They used him at 4 or 3C or even 2C uh, for a while in the playoffs, which I think was a mistake, and I think he was a little bit exposed there. Uh, but as a bottom sixer, excellent player. Can kill penalties. You know, he hits. He's uh, he's made a couple of really good defensive plays with his reach. Um like everything about him and loved him at 450000 which is what they got him for. So not only are they going to have to replace him, they're going to have to pay a big chunk more to even a minimum salary that replaces him. But as I wrote in my new post about him and these other guys we're talking about, uh, is that uh, uh, if you wanted to retain Bugstad himself, you would be looking at a larger bump than 
from uh, uh, from four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I mean, think of uh, Brett Kulak uh, last summer. They got him from Montreal. He was a one point eight million dollar player in Montreal, but they retained half. So Oilers got him at nine hundred thousand. And then when they did renew him at two point seven five million, from Oilers' perspective, that's a, a one point eight million dollar raise. From the player's perspective, it's only, you know, it's 50%. Nice raise, $900,000 raise. But the Oilers went from paying half of his lower salary to all of his new higher salary. And those kind of steps take a bite. And you got to find you got to find that money somewhere else. And, and uh, I don't just don't see where they've got extra for uh, Nick Bugstad. Because I think he's probably, what, a million and a half dollar ask yeah. next year? He's probably going to get around two million a year, Maybe. right? Like that's the estimate at yeah. at um, daily faceoffs. For it, I, you know, uh, he scored what seventeen goals, mm-hmm. and he's a big center. And um, yeah, he, he. So I I I'm keep holder full. I mean, if you could keep him at a at a, mm-hmm. you know, you have to. We're we're not just going on performance here. We're going on salary expectation. Right. Absolutely. And uh, that's that's the, that's the that's the barrier for me. I think they can afford Ryan. I don't think they can afford Bugstad because his his uh, ask is going to be more. He also wasn't great in the playoffs. Um, this is in, we're going to get into this a little bit a, a lot, actually. But we mentioned this before about the line matching that went on when Bugstad, yes. Hyman and Nugent Hopkins was paired up against the Eichel line of Marsha Show and Eichel and um uh, Barbashev, they got eaten alive, and Bukestad was part of that. He was struggling um, defensively against Eichel. He was over, he was overmatched against Eichel, not fast enough. He didn't, his feet weren't quick enough to keep up with Eichel, is how I saw it. So um, I think what the orders need is a checking line, and I'm not sure that he checks the box on a checking mm-hmm. line. If he's that, if he's not fast enough as a center to contain um, Eichel. There's all kinds of players who are as fast as Eichel. Um, you know, you know the, the tops, because I, I see the checking line, you're playing against the top centers fairly often. And I'm not sure he can do that. I think Ryan McLeod can. So I would rather the Oilers commit to McLeod in that role. Um, and I think you move on from Bugstad, who doesn't really check that box. Um, unless he's maybe on the wing at, at a reasonable price, and then you can fill in at center. But um, defensively, I just think he was a bit exposed, Bruce, in the playoffs. Um, and uh, it wasn't just the strategy of, of the Oilers. It was it was foot, it was his uh, agility and foot speed that was just a wee bit mm-hmm. lacking. On the yeah. penalty kill, too, he... Um, well, there's a couple times he took his shifts for too long. He had a chance to get off the ice, and then at least once they scored against L.A. There might have been another time where they came close to. But he was okay on the penalty kill in the playoffs. In the regular season, he looked like he was checking all of these boxes, I should say. Yes, yeah, yeah. He, no. he really did. And, and if you listen to our podcast, that's what you would hear me saying before the playoffs. He's checking all the boxes. He's checking line mm-hmm. center. This is what the Oilers need. Mm-hmm. But it's the, the the playoffs are a big it's a, yeah. it's word crucible, big test, like yeah. a testing mm-hmm. ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't think he passed that test. Like, and, and it's the difference between him and a player like Kulak who really did, uh-huh. you know, right. I'm inclined to, I, I, you know, you could otherwise trade Kulak, but he really played well in the playoffs. 
you'd be you're thinking, yeah. why would you get rid of him? Like, man, he really came through for your team um, in that moment. But Bukestad did not. Yeah, well, he I, I I found it interesting that the coaching staff first of all promoted him to two C, and then left him there when uh, it wasn't going all that well. Uh, but it seemed like the McDavid Drysaddle together thing for was it the fourth playoff year in a row when it came to crunch time those guys wound up playing together and sometimes there were you know physical reasons uh but anyway uh when you're second line and you've got nugent hopkins on your second line and you got him moved over to wing and you have a promoted a guy from the bottom six and they i just looked it up they have pretty interesting numbers as a, as a line nugent hopkins hyman and bukestad played uh, 29 minutes, so not a huge, huge amount. And uh, they had 12 shot attempts to 42, six against? shots, six shots four to 23 against, uh, for a 20% shot shot share, and they had two goals for one goal against, <laughs> uh, with a PDO of 12.90, I might add, which is not a figure one sees very often. Uh, they so they didn't get killed on the score clock, but they I'm pretty sure that's just the last two games against LA. I remember game five and Bukestad scored twice in that game, and they just got kicked to the curb by all the shot shares, and yet they they won two, they got two goals to zero. And then I think in the next series, they they uh, they didn't use Hyman quite so much there. I'm not quite sure who how the um. Did I they have to use? dig in a little deeper. Did they use Kane? Well, I was going to ask maybe Kane. Yeah, Kane. Why don't you put Kane in your thing? I'll put so, Kane in instead you know, of Hyman. Yeah. I, and it's not just Bukestad. Hyman, who was clearly injured, uh, was not played as weakest hockey as an Oiler in these playoffs. Nugent Hopkins played as weakest hockey in about two or three years in the playoffs. They were both uh, really ineffective. So it was... Um, it was tough. I mean, when they when they when they realized it wasn't going to work with McDavid and Drysaddle on their separate lines, um, they didn't really have a solid plan B, and uh, it hurt. Yeah, yeah, and they, they did have a couple guys uh, below par, as you say, and and uh, uh, Nuge was Nuge was just Nuge was he was bad in the playoffs, and I don't know why, but he just was. Yeah, I got, got a bunch of points on the power play and secondary assists, a lot of them. And, and uh, he he just, all year we were raving about his man strength and how he was winning battles yes. or at least breaking yes. even on battles that he used to not do so well on. And whether it was uh, in the playoffs, the other opponents stepped it up to another level and uh, started, you know, just being stronger generally. He's not a really strong man. I don't know. Maybe he had something going on physically, or anyway, he was um, uh, uh, he was not as effective in his puck battles or anywhere close to it in uh, in the postseason. And uh, it's a sad way to end what had been a you know a, a magnificent career season. It really much. was. Yeah, he was just leaking great A shots against. He was weak defensively. He couldn't get much going on the attack. He was still good on the power play. I don't. I didn't see anything physical because wrong with him. Because on the power play, he looked like his his self, and was oh, able to no goals. Yeah. All right. Uh, who's Devin Shore? Yeah. 
He he came. I'll, I'll go first. Keep hold. Sure. Hold. Well, he, I'll I'll go with um, hold. Mm-hmm. I don't think you necessarily say we're not bringing this player back. He had a really strong second half of the season. He was a useful player who you could send up and down through the waiver wire. He's not going to get taken by another team. Um, he came on and and he did come on strong in the second half. He played really strong two way hockey in in a fourth line role. Um, at league minimum, why wouldn't you? Um, keep a player like that or you can send to Bakersfield. He didn't play in the playoffs, so uh, we can't comment on that. But he 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 can he's a solid fourth line winger who can step into the third line if there's lots of injuries. Yeah, I I would actually I'm actually now that I think of it, because I think you'll get league minimum, I'm in the keep camp for give him a one year deal at seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Why not? Yeah, I landed in basically the same place, David, in in uh Reviewing Shore's performance, he's now a three-year oiler, uh, and uh, he's, um, uh, I mean, when you want to talk about checking a lot of boxes, well, he checks the boxes of a utility player, right, of a, a, uh, 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 you know, a uh, Kevin Biggio or uh, a a oh, kind watch. of kind of player, Kevin Biggio, Toronto Blue Jay, just does a little bit of everything. Oh, uh, I'm not a, I don't watch baseball. Oh so. well, oh man. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, all-purpose utility man that can come in and fill in in almost any position, uh, and who knows that his job is largely to warm the bench, and he can be real happy doing just that. And uh, Devin Shore is a, a, a fantastic teammate by everything I've seen and heard. Uh, fully invested in the team, whether he's dressed for a game or not. And, you know, he's that guy that's on the cusp that, you know, he'll take the warm up and then the coach will say, I'm sorry, Devin's popcorn again tonight. And he played uh, 130 some out of 220 possible games when he was in Edmonton. I don't think he was ever really hurt. It was just he was always on the edge of the roster. 12, number 12, or number 13 forward. Uh, might come out if they go 11 7. Uh, you know, might uh, um, get a run of games if a forward gets hurt for a little while. And he was this year, he was waived twice. Uh, he was, uh, uh, he went to the minors on a conditioning assignment. He played his first games in the minors since 2015-16. This guy's been an NHL or all his time. Like, he's not a tweener. And uh, uh, he's, uh, uh, he did well in those, in those games. And then just up before the trade deadline, before Oilers traded Paul Yarvey, uh, you'll probably recall this, David, and they had to send out... Uh, couple of guys to the minors and they actually went with a 20-man roster because they had uh, Yamamoto was coming off the injured reserve and they didn't have the cap space so they sent out Dylan Holloway uh, and sure I think it was and it looked like he was finally the odd man out they were down to 20 men and then the very first game someone got hurt Uh, that put him down to 19 men they had to play one game with 19 men and they called up Shore as an emergency replacement so here he got another life after it looked like he was finally odd mm-hmm. man out. And he came back and he played the best hockey of his three years in Edmonton for about a month after that. And he had, uh, uh, I think, a, a goal, 
and four primary assists and a secondary assist and just playing 10 minutes a night over an 11 game span, big plus, and always playing, you know, with guys like Bugstad and Jan Mark and, and, you know, bottom six guys and still uh, productive and outscoring and happy and, you know, and yet when it came time to, uh, uh, you know, that I think it was, um, uh, Ryan McLeod came off the injury list right at the very end of the season. And guess who's the odd man out again? He stays the odd man out for the whole playoffs. Sure, he doesn't love it, but at the same time, he I've never heard a whisper of a complaint out of this guy. Never heard, you know, he's, and, I mean, he knows his spot and he and he does that job. I, I respect the hell out of Devin Shore. I really do. Well, there you go. I, I, um, I respect the hell out of how he played in the second half of the year after he mm-hmm. came back up. There's no way in the world I would have said keep that player based on his performance in the first half of the season when he was he was mm-hmm. not strong. He was he was not getting the job done. But something happened in Bakersfield, I think. And he got his five points in five games. Maybe he's got his confidence back, got some ice time, got his game going, mm-hmm. and he came back and he and he brought it. Yes. Um, so I, I'm in the because uh, he's. You can have Good minimum. He, he was only a hundred grand over the minimum, but he can't even yeah. be that much. It has to be minimum. I think the orders need to sign like four or five forwards in this category and two or three defensemen in this category. Like not just one, like they did last year with Ryan, with Murray, you know, where they reliant on him because if the orders had had any serious injury problems, oh. they would, they would have been in trouble. I think they were a little shallow on de- defensive depth. Now I understand like some people are really high on Cam Deneen as a player. He's a smaller defenseman. But uh, he can really move the puck. Mm-hmm. So maybe they have someone like that who's, you know, just ready to make the move to the NHL. He is a smaller defenseman, though, and um, that's not generally what we see in the NHL playoffs. Certainly succeed. not in Edmonton. Well, how many smaller defensemen does Vegas have? Yeah, no, that's true. How many smaller defense? I don't know about Florida. Do they have any? Maybe. Uh, Montour's not huge, but he's 6'2", I think. Yeah. I don't think – I'm not – there's not a lot of small defensemen playing right now or in the final four, I don't think. Um, so I don't think they're wrong, Bruce, with wanting big guys. I think right. they're No, act- no, there's a reason for it. People have always loved – I've always loved 6'2 defensemen until I got to be about 30, and I think it changed to 6'3", and now it's 6'4". I really like the 6'4 guys. <laughs> Ekholm, right? Ekholm, Ekholm. That's the prototype. Yeah, six four two ten two fifteen, right in there. Anyway, uh, but I also remember the days of Norm McIver playing with Dave Manson on Oilers defense in the early nineteen nineties, and Dave Manson was big, brawny, tough, powerful slap shot. You know, he had a ton. And Norm McIver, I just call him the brains of the gang. He was the guy that moved the puck that. Got uh, got it to Manson in good spots along the blue line. He was to Manson what uh, Charlie Huddy was to Paul Coffey. You know, just a real support. Get the guy, get the puck to the guy in the right places. Cover up for him. You know, for his messes and and uh, uh, just you know a very very smart player. And just to go back to something that you were saying earlier in the conversation that had me thinking of Norm uh, McIver in the first place. I remember the criticism on him was, well, he can't box out Bob Probert from the edge of the crease, so what use is he? And I'd always think, well, give me a long list of all the other guys who do box out Bob Probert at the edge of the crease, and then we can re-examine why the little guys having trouble with him. But uh, 
That's uh... well, and if the little guy's super determined, he can box out a great big guy. If he if he's super smart, like Chris Russell can uh-huh. box out Bob Bob Probert. He well, was he certainly got between him and the net. Yeah, that's... well, that's it. That's all you got to do is lift his stick at yeah. the right moment. It's not about knocking him yeah. to the ice. It's about lift, lifting his stick at the right second. Yeah. So um, smaller demon can do that, and they got to be awfully smart. Like they have to be the Derek Ryan of defensemen, yeah. and maybe Camdenin is. Like there is a there is a. I mean, listen. The, the best defenseman in the NHL is one of the smallest defensemen in the NHL, Kale McCarr. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's not six feet. He's not 200 pounds. He's well under both, I believe. And he's just unbelievably good. I mean, I think he's 5'11". So, um, but man, there's just nobody like Kale McCarr. And that Gerard, Sam, is that his name? Sam Gerard on Sam Colorado? Sam Gerard, yeah. He is a fantastic little hockey player. So you can have these kind of players and they can play. And maybe so Camden one, but I just think they got to bring in a couple guys and that they're going to be able to find them. Like if there is this huge glut of players who mm-hmm. are tweeners who can make the NHL, well, let's let's have the Oilers sign yeah. um, a number of them for this coming season and see how that goes. Because they, I think they were a little lacking on defensive depth. My favorite small defenseman currently in the NHL is uh, Edmonton native Jared Spurgeon of uh, Minnesota Wild, where he's enjoyed a terrific career. Uh, this year at age 33, Amir, 34 points and plus 32 uh, in 79 games. And just a survivor. He's just he's such a, uh, a, a terrific um, offensive player, puck mover, but smart. That's the thing all these guys, as you just mentioned, have in common. Smart, smart, smart. Cam Deneen is 5'11", 188. Is that about mm-hmm. the size of Spurgeon or is he closer to 200? Five, he's about 5'9". Five, 5'9", 166. Like, he's the smallest guy. Like, he's even smaller than Chris Russell by four pounds. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) He must be an incredible skater. Yes. Yeah, so Deneen had 12 points in 19 games in Bakersfield. Mm -hmm. He he probably would have been their best defenseman the second he got there. He's a veteran AHL player. I guess I'm on the power play. I'm I'm certain of it. the Oilers, like, they they tried to bring in some guys last year. Like, Justin Bailey is this kind of category of player. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they had a, Greg McKegg, who did not work out at all. Right. Um, well, he, he got better. He had a pretty good second half in the AHL, but okay. he's under contract for another year. But there yeah, I, I agree. You want to have three or four or five of these guys. I'm good with, with uh, signing Devin Shore because you know what you got. Uh, he's only 28 years old, for that matter. Um, he does clear waivers if you need him to clear waivers. He'd be a great mentor in the AHL level. He wouldn't be a guy to go down there and salt. That's just not his nature. And uh, I, you know, uh, for all that they're um, uh, intangibles, I joked last night about uh, uh, about the uh, 200 Hockey Man's Guide to Intangibles, but some of those things do matter. Having good teammates matter. I think the Oilers, in the last two years, Ken Holland has made it a priority, and the Devonshire uh, extension was actually part of this, to keep his players happy, have a tight group of guys that really liked one another. And he saw a role for Devonshire on that team, even as a bottom-end player at a bottom-end salary. And the case really still holds today. All righty. Um, Bruce... Let's uh, move on. Let's talk about, before we get into the, this coaching issue, because I think it's going to take a while to, to go through that. And, uh, but let's, let's, um, let's just talk about quickly about free agents. Kurt Levins, uh, our cult of hockey colleague, um, in his uh, 
Much Loved Nine Things column, which comes out every Sunday and is hugely popular with readers um, for good reason. Kurt often gets some great inside scoops and uh, has lots of great insights. He um, talked about a couple different players that might come to the Oilers. Travis Konechny, who's a young, smallish but aggressive winger on the Flyers. I think he has one year left at $5.5 million. Yeah. Um, I just, I mean, you'd have to clear out CC to bring in that player for next year. You'd have to clear out basically all of the $3 million men except for Stuart Skinner. So you'd have to get rid of Kulak, CC, and Fogel, I think, to bring in one more $5 million guy with all the other, because you have to sign Bouchard and Yamamoto. And Yamamoto, yeah, yeah. Well, you're already going to have to move one or two of them just to pay off the raises they're paying to last year's team. Correct. So you already have to move out one or two, probably mm-hmm. one for sure, Yamamoto. For sure. And, okay, you, you might be able to get it done with just Yamamoto, mm-hmm. but you, you're going to have to move out at least two out of the three, I think, if you are to bring in Konechny mm-hmm. and maybe one more. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, Kulak and Cece are pretty solid NHL defensemen. I'd be hesitant, really hesitant to make that kind of move. Mm-hmm. And um, Warren Fogel, if it, if you can move out Fogel, let's say, and bring in Konechny somehow, make that work. Sure, I would. That that'd work, but I don't know if you can make that move. Well, where do you get the extra money from? I mean, the idea of offloading, for instance, Yamamoto, is you're going to replace him with a, a cheaper player, maybe Dylan Holloway or something. You're going to save two million bucks. Well, as you replace him with Travis Konechny, you're losing two plus million bucks against the cap. And now you've reduced your options of how, where and how you can save against the cap. I mean, the idea, well, let's, let's go, uh, let's get a ninth $5 million player and then pay everybody else peanuts. I mean, to use Ken Holland's phrase. Uh, And it's, uh, it's, as I've been saying, stratifying and it's becoming ever more. So I just can't see or getting some guy who has, uh, uh, is this a good defensive player, David? Like, are we bringing a guy that we can put in there with Leon and uh, and Kane or Hyman and clean up stuff? I mean, what they really need is a good two-way top six caliber forward. I'm not sure that I see that in Konechny, and that said, I don't watch many Philadelphia games. I, 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 can't I do know he stands out in an offensive way when I see him, but... Yeah, I can't I say, know. Bruce. I have no idea. Like, I I really don't. He he looks like he's a really fine second-line, first-line attacker. Mm-hmm. Um, he His injury history is a little... Let's see, 66 games one year. Well, that was the year they played 71. It's okay. He got he got banged up a bit last year, only played 60 games. But other than that, he's been pretty Five, good. 5'10", 175. Yeah, so. he's a smaller player, So and he's 26. So mm-hmm. um, I'm not against, like, if you could afford him, mm-hmm. by all mm-hmm. means. Like, that sounds like a, a player you'd want on your team. I just don't see how that works. Mm-hmm. But he did bring up a player that might work, Curtis Brown, who's 29, and he averages, he gets about... Um, 30 to 40 points a year. He's had a couple 20 goal seasons. He missed most of last year with a major knee injury. I think it was, was it? And he had surgery, um, I think on his knee. So Curtis Brown played for Washington last year. Excuse me, Connor Brown. Who's Curtis Brown? Uh, Connor Brown had, um, he played with Ottawa and Toronto before then. And Mm -hmm. uh, he's about 6'1", 200, I think. Six feet, 200. And he's a, he's, um, 
he has a reputation of being a solid defensive player. He's he's played um, kind of top six minutes several times for different teams in the last few years. And um, sorry, that's okay. <laughs> so the interesting thing, though, Bruce, and I was not aware of this, is that because of his injury history and his, I'm not sure what the, what all combines for this, but there's something about him how. That, that makes him, even though he's not over 35, you can sign him to a bonus-laden contract mm-hmm. where um, you could sign him for the league minimum. And if he scored, let's say, 15 goals and 40 points, you could give him $4 million um, or $3 million. Um, but that wouldn't count against your cap hit this year. It would count next year. Yeah. So How bad uh, do you want that, I ask? How bad do you want that as a really, really good question? When 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 you could plug in Raphael Lavoie there or Dylan Holloway and f- give them that ice time and they might be every bit as productive. Uh now they're not they're not Connor Brown, who um is a really you know, has a reputation as a solid two way hockey player. Yes. So depends what the bonuses are, I guess. How how high? Like if they're two million dollars as opposed to four million dollars, maybe you do want that because you know the cap's going to go up significantly. And this is a way of right. having a more competitive team this year. When you really mm-hmm. like, listen, Bruce, they had such a great chance to win the Stanley Cup this year. It was wide open for them, and it's I think it's quite a painful thing for this organization how everything's turned out. You know, I think they were the cup favorite heading into the playoffs. That's how a lot of the bookmakers had them, and they found a way to lose. Next year's the same. Like this, this team should be in the thick of competing for the Stanley Cup, and I can see them wanting a player like this to come in and help them do that if they can make it work in a way that they can't with Konechny, right? Mm-hmm. It's just not. I don't see how that works, but this could work. And and I and again, he's coming off major injury, but if he's only a minimum salary, and if he doesn't pan out, then. If his if his knee isn't there, then that's no, that's fine. Yeah. But if he does, if he's the Connor Brown of old, who's uh-huh. a pretty valuable second third line player, yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, he played with. Uh, I mean, he he was pretty well paid before. Like after his entry, he came in with Toronto, uh, and that super duper crop of uh, right wingers that were rookies at the same time in Toronto. He was one of the five, including Marner, Nylander, um, Kapanen, uh, Hyman, and Brown. And, oh, yeah, they had Austin Matthews as a rookie center. Uh, and he made that team, and he was a strong player, but eventually they traded him out in a kind of a salary trade with Ottawa, and they sent him to Ottawa. So he made 2.1 for three years in Toronto, and then Ottawa gave him 3.6 for three years. That's the one that's just expired. And he scored – He the first year that was really good. He had 21 goals in the 56-game season and a plus player in Ottawa, which was really hard to do. And he also was a, a star in the World Hockey Championships that year. Uh, and then the next year, just 10 goals and 29 assists, and this year just four games played. So I just don't see how the price would be that high, like $3.6 million player that uh, hasn't been for the last two of those three years. Like, you'd have to think that price is going to be coming down a bit, especially with the injury concerns. So even the bonuses may be a little little less than 
like uh, a million in bonuses you're well, thinking, like yeah, a million, a million and, and a half. half yeah yeah i think yeah. you might be right Bruce. If he, and if i mean he, give him guarantee him one million and then you know and bonuses whatever but what i really don't want to get locked into is you know next summer comes around we're going well now we got to pay off that curtis brown contract yeah you know i mean we've been paying off old contracts or bonuses or retentions or buyouts or, what's you know, your maximum bonus for curtis for connor brown uh well if you set the bonus at a good figure in, in other words you know you don't say 10 games played and we give you three million bucks but you set it at actual you know decent production and he hits the bonuses uh then yeah i don't mind 1.5 and um maybe that's not enough but uh I mean, it is a way for them to kind of stick handle around this year's problem, and then they just hope there's enough of a bump next year, maybe three or four or five million in the cap that they can absorb it then better than they can right now. Because right now it's a it's a razor wire of a type tightrope they're walking. I think a fair way to so a fair way to look at it might be like so what is his market value this year? So let's say his mm-hmm. market value this year, he's he's coming off a major surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, he only, he as you say, he only did get 10 goals in 64 games, but he did get 39 points mm-hmm. um, for Ottawa. So I, I, you know, if, if let's say he's a $1.5 million player this year, does that make sense? Yeah. 2 million? Yeah, yeah, in there somewhere. Tops. And, and even so, that layer almost doesn't exist anymore, David. The orders don't have anybody in that range. You know? Yeah, so it's almost <laughs> like it's almost like you should give him a minimum contract. And because he's betting on himself, you're yeah. going to give him a bit more than so let's say he's let's say he's a one point five million dollar player yeah. this year. Yeah. You give him a million dollar bonus money that he could earn. Because then he could earn if he just has an average caught Connor Brown season, right. let's say it's thirty points yeah. is the is what you gotta get. And and mm-hmm. sixty, you know. 60 games, yeah. 30 points, something like that, which is your average season, Connor. If you get that, um, then you'll get another million dollars and we'll sign you for the league minimum. Right. Does that sound about right? Sounds like an, the kind of offer that the artist could make that uh, would allow them to uh, compete for the player, but, you know, they just can't afford to go yeah, very I, far up the line. Like Holland said in his press conference that you covered, that uh, when they're talking about acquiring new players, uh, he says, yeah, as long as they're making peanuts. And, you know, it's it, he wasn't, you know, he was talking reality again. I mean, he's uh, he arguably painted himself into this corner, but he's got, you know, the commitments to the long-term uh, uh, big money contracts, and he's got a, a whole bunch of work to do on the small money depth player contracts and uh he'll be doing real well if he can build a bottom six as good as the one he had last year he said that actually in an interview to Stoffer on oilers now not a mm-hmm. press conference oh yeah okay i think he did both then maybe he uh, said it peanuts in a press conference yeah. but i i only heard it in the interview okay. with Stoffer. okay all right fair enough um, he said it publicly being he did thing, yes he certainly did <laughs> uh Bruce, let's move on. I did a post on um, the Oilers' man-to-man defensive structure. And so we're going to break this conversation into four parts mm-hmm. instead of me having a lengthy soliloquy. I'll, I'll raise an issue and then you could get your, your thought on it. Sure. And, we'll, and we'll start with a quote. 
So um, what we what what I did was I went over all the even. I talked about this last podcast that I was just yeah. I was bothered by something I was seeing. Mm-hmm. These these plays where Nurse or CC would be way out by the blue line, leaving centers to maybe cover, maybe not cover in front of the net, and just the number of times I saw that these wide open chances that Vegas was getting, and LA to a lesser extent against the Oilers, and the defenseman nowhere near this. And I wasn't I'm not alone in raising this. This was raised during the playoffs, and Darnell Nurse took a lot of blame during the playoffs, a lot of heat for being out of position in this regard, but. I just wanted to go and look at two things. How often did this happen? Was this is this real, or just did it? Was it just a couple incidents and it blew all our minds and we're all going on about this and it's just was a couple breakdowns, or was this a constant? Was this the strategy? And if it was a strategy, how like what what did Vegas do? What yeah. were they doing that was different? And I didn't really know the answer to that, I but I feel that. like I do know the answer now. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start off. Um, and, and the answer is that the Oilers played man-to-man defense in their own zone. And so when you were on Jack Eichel, wherever Jack Eichel went, you covered Jack Eichel. And if he went out to the blue line, you went out with him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and that meant if you're Darnell Nurse, you go out to the blue line, that means Leon Dreisaitl, who's the center, or Nick Bugstad, who's the center, or Ryan McLeod, they've got to read that and then go cover the defensive slot where you should be. That was the that is the Oilers' system in, in these plays. That's what they were doing, and I say that with confidence. And it's it's not just me saying this. So we're going to start out at, with a quote. This is from Jonathan Marsh of the Vegas Golden Knights. And usually, Bruce, when players are interviewed, they they say nothing. They give you nothing of interest or um, use. Um, it's just. It's just I, I don't often actually listen to the interviews of the players because they're so content free of anything that's of use for understanding the, the game of hockey, which is my primary interest. And they just they're not asked. I don't feel like often they're not asked those kind of questions. And if they, they do, they don't want to get into it. But he just scored three goals in one period. And he was he was pretty pumped. Mm-hmm. And Gene Principe asked him, what do you guys have to do? to hold on to, you know, to beat the orders in this third period in this game six. This is between the second and the third periods of game six. Vegas was up, I think, at that point, four to two. Four to and and um, show was just stoked. And here's what Marcheseau said to Gene Principe's question. If we keep bringing pucks to the net, we know they play man-to-man in the D zone, so we just have to beat our guy to the net and we can get bounces there. And Bruce, that is the most damning, that is the most damning quote of the playoffs about the Edmonton Oilers, I feel. It it is the most um, enlightening quote as well. Because Vegas knew all they had to do was move, cycle with that puck, cycle with that puck, move with that puck, throw the puck at the net, go to the net, and the Oilers, was, they were going to break down. The, the, because, for, and I think there's two reasons. They're going with both luck. They know they're going to get the bounces. They knew that they, the luck was going to go their way because in a man-to-man defense, it's just going to get confused enough. That you're not going to be able to cover that guy in front of the net. You're going to forget or you're going to slip up 
or your best and also your best defenders aren't going to be there because you're going to move those defenders out to the blue line on purpose. So you take those guys away with your motion offense, your motion cycle, you throw the puck at the net and you hustle hard to the net and you just know that one of those centers is going to, he's not going to make the the right read. He's not going to be there and you're going to slam the puck in the net. And that is exactly what happened in the second period twice on those two crucial goals, the tying goal and the go-ahead goal in the third period came because Marcia Show did exactly that. And on one play, he beat, I think actually on both plays, he beat Leon Dreisaitl to the net, which is why Dreisaitl was so disconsolate after the game. Bruce, I'm going to give Leon Dreisaitl a pass, something I didn't mm-hmm. do in the playoffs. This is on the coaches. This is on mm-hmm. the Oilers coaches, on their strategy. It was a, and we'll get into the Vegas strategy in a little bit. But Vegas knew what they were doing, and then he knew they could beat them, and they did. Yeah, well, as Marchessault's words say, if you you can beat your guy to the bet, net, if you're playing man-to-man, you just got one man to beat. Uh, you're not going through layers of, of players. And, uh, and they did get some bounces. I mean, I remember that one uh, that kicked off, I can't remember who it hit, but it just bounced Nurse. sideways right onto Marchessault's stick, and he was able to tuck it in before either Skinner or Nurse could quite get over to stop the second one. There's Nurse and Barbashev were in front of the net in that play, and it hit one of Nurse or Barbashev in front right. of the net and went right, right. to Marchessault. Another one I remember, I can't recall specifically if it was game six or, or earlier in the series, maybe. Um, anyway, uh, where Skinner made a save, and the puck popped straight up in the air, and about two or three seconds later, it came down right in the blue paint. And there was two Vegas guys standing on the edge of the crease waiting to tuck it home, and two Edmonton guys standing beyond those guys trying to find the puck but not blocking out their man, either of them. And, of course, the two Vegas guys, one of them tucked it home. That was Marcia, yeah. so that was his second goal that period, and it was Oh, that Nurse. was that game, it was. It yeah, was okay. Nurse and oh, Dreisaitl yeah, who nice. kind of flew by, and, mm-hmm. you know, in a zone, you stay in the zone. They they left the zone, they were out of the play, and uh, Marcia so was there to hammer it home. Yeah. Bruce, and so this just didn't happen then, right? This was, These weren't the only times that this kind of thing happened. So let's, now we'll move into... Uh, you know, I think Marcia so kind of spilled the beans from the Vegas perspective on what good. they saw with the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it's it helps because in this that kind of analysis. deliver a message a lot faster than, uh, you know, Coach Manson on the whiteboard for the 900th time in the drill when an opponent makes a comment like that, that'll get their attention. Well, it's also us saying it, right? Like we're just right. fans, right? You go over the videotape. They, they just think mm-hmm. they'll be... They, doesn't matter what we say in, on a certain right. level. Like we're not NHL experts and th- they could shrug off what we say. And it, but when, mm-hmm. when Marsh so says it, and I'm writing a post on that tonight, actually that carries some weight. That's got a sting yeah, because true. this is the diagnosis. This is Dr. Jonathan Marsh, Marsh. So with the diagnosis of what went wrong with your team. Right. So well, that's there's worth another post, David. And I, I have to compliment you. Your last post was, uh, I thought, outstanding. That went into some of those details and obviously a lot of legwork on your part to review. Was it 54 grade eights, grade A's each for the each two teams for over teams. the six games? Yeah. And it was um, uh, uh, 
in promoting your post, I received a number of comments back from different people that were complimentary of the contents and you know and the details, sort of some of the hockey tactics and strategy that too many don't get into. You know, I personally don't write about that a lot because I don't consider myself much of an expert on that subject. Um, but um, uh, I, that kind of coverage is appreciated by the by the meat and potatoes uh, hardcore fans. I don't think uh, here's what I would say about what we're doing because we're doing this review of scoring chances. We have a process to help whatever knowledge we started out with. We now have a process where we can get smarter and more knowledgeable about this kind of thing. And I wouldn't have written this kind of post 10 years ago. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have had the confidence. Right. And I'm not saying that, that I'm getting this right. I'm just saying based on our Worth process, the which we diligently do and tr- to try to understand what's going on, um, this is the conclusions that I've come to. I may be incorrect. Uh, I may I may be getting some stuff wrong. So it's important for me also to see Marsha mm-hmm. show say things like that. So I so I I'm more confident that right. I'm on the right path. That said, <clears throat> there's room for debate on this. And if I was to talk to Jay Woodcroft, like they won't they don't give interviews to bloggers, so we can't ask him directly these kinds of things. But I would ask him, and I would say, you know go over this with him and hear what he would, what he would have to say. And he might say, you're just, you're just wrong. You know, we, this is, this is how the system should have worked. And this is not on the coaches. I don't think he'd throw the players under the, under the bus, but Bruce, the players did get thrown under the bus. And, and fundamentally, this is what I want to be in, in terms of this coverage is fair and accurate. Mm-hmm. I don't want to blame people who aren't to blame. So right. if Darnell nurse is way out at the blue line covering mm-hmm. um, Riley Smith as if that's his, if that was his assignment, right. I don't want to be sitting here blaming Darnell Nurse and giving him heat when it's actually he's doing what the coaches told him to do. So this is what I'm trying to figure out is a fair and accurate assessment of what mm-hmm. went wrong. The first set of numbers we're going to talk about is 31 to 21. So both teams had 54 grade A shots at even strength. And you will often hear commentators right now saying, well, the, the teams, you know, they, they kind of sought it off at even strength. They both had a lot of uh, grade A shots. The shot quality wasn't that dissimilar. That. It's what we, they, I've heard it, and it's not accurate according to our assessment. Right. What we saw was Vegas had 31 of the 54 five-alarm shots. Vegas had 31 of the absolute best of them, which are what we call five-alarm shots. They go in on average 33%. All the other grade-A shots that aren't five-alarmers, they go in on average 20% of the time. That's a pretty significant difference. 31 to 21 for Vegas, and the goal scored, Bruce, are indicative of that kind of of um, difference in shot quality. Vegas had 16 goals. The Oilers had just nine at even strength. So I think that our numbers on the grade A shots, on the five alarm shots, reflect that. So the Oilers gave up 31. What did Vegas do to give up just 21? I mean, they're playing against Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, Ryan Nugent-Hopkins, Evander Kane, Zach Hyman, some really strong offensive players. Evan Bouchard. Evan Bouchard. (laughs) Only 21 five-alarm shots in six games. That's pretty weak for Edmonton, eh? That is really weak. I I think the Oilers averaged about eight, seven or eight a game in the regular season, and here they got 21 in six games. What were they doing? They, They were playing a zone. They were playing zone defense. And what they did was they had two defensemen in front always, always, always in front of the net, unless the puck went into their corner. Puck goes into the corner, 
one of the defensemen goes in there, the other guy stays in front of the net. Always one defenseman in front yeah. of the net. The only exception to that is when you have two. When yeah. the Oilers are rushing the puck in or cycling the puck. So as soon as Connor McDavid would wheel out towards the blue line, let's say um, Alex Martinez, who was the best defenseman by a country mile, best defensive defenseman in that series by a country mile. That does sound as soon as McDavid would wheel out to the blue line, M- Martinez would peel back. He would not follow him because he knows the chances of Connor McDavid scoring from out there, they're not great. Mm-hmm. But if I go out there, he'll use <clears> his <throat> and he'll beat me and then he'll only have a forward to beat and then they're going to score. So he would just move back to the top of the slot and they would stack two defensemen in his own, one on top of the other. One would be right in front of the goalie and the other one would be about four or five feet in front of him. Let's say it's Martinez and um, Peter Angelo who are stacked like that. McDavid then beats the forward out of the blue line. He he charges back in. Then he's facing Martinez. If he can beat Martinez, then he has to beat Peter Angelo. And this is why in this series, most of Connor McDavid's grade A shots came off kind of what I would call desperation plays, where he would beat the first guy. And before the second guy closed on him, he would get off as fast as he could a grade A shot from inside the slot, but he couldn't beat both of them. And his grade A shots weren't of the highest quality, his usual high quality. There weren't one-on-one with the goalie because of this Vegas mm-hmm. strategy. They did it with the, all, all of the Oilers and highly effective in limiting the most dangerous of uh, grade A shots against. Yeah, well, a play you describe of Martinez deciding not to chase McDavid out to the blue line. The most dangerous play for the other team is that left defenseman chases McDavid, and the next thing you know, Leon slides into that spot where the left defenseman used to be, and McDavid feeds him, and Leon slams it into the net. Um, whereas Martinez might be letting him go and saying, well, where's Leon? I just have to stay between him and the net, and he either, either blocked the shot or he doesn't even take it because he's got no, you know, and, and they were... They were uh, uh, a little ahead in the four-dimensional chess department, and, and Martinez, as you pointed out rightly, was uh, was a real force in that and subsequent series. I've really been seeing him good. What a good player! He mm-hmm. and the other good, the other really good player was that huge Nicholas Haig. Yeah, he's wow. real good. He is he is a really good defenseman. Now, Vegas did get beat. Like, the Oilers got their best chances when the, when the Oilers' top players were able to beat them out of the corner. That's the one time they would the defenseman would leave the front of the net, and the mm-hmm. Oilers would often beat them out of the corner. And then, right. But it's not the best angle to score from when you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, a, that was a problem for Vegas. Probably next year, they'll just say, screw the corners. Like, we'll give you that, too. And we'll just mm-hmm. keep these two guys in front of the net. Play even more of a zone. Of even more of a zone. The second you come close, you're done. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see even more extreme zone tactics against a team like the Oilers, where you just completely park the bus, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, at least in the defensive zone. Like, Vegas didn't park the bus on the attack. They, unlike L.A., who didn't forecheck, Vegas forechecked, which I think is a good idea on the attack. But in their own zone, they were just packed in there. And they would leave the forwards to cover off everything else up top, cover the forwards and their forwards did a pretty good job too but it was really these six defensemen that they had who showed remarkable discipline uh in terms of guarding the front of the net so the interesting next- tactic too david to stack them one above the other yeah there's a lot of mcdavid's goals you see him coming in one on two 
and he beats the one guy wide and the other guy's got nothing to say about it because he's on the far side of the ice. Indeed. Whereas if you stack them one above the other, he's got to beat them both sequentially as opposed to going by the line of two of them with one with one move. He's got to got to beat them both. So that's an interesting uh, interesting ploy for sure. It was startling to see it. Like because I didn't see it. I'm watching these games. I didn't see that. I didn't. I wasn't looking for it. Mm-hmm. But I started to see it again and again and again. Mm-hmm. The same formation. All right. The next set of numbers is 19 to 14. This is just looking at the Oilers and the grade A, the 54 grade A shots at even strength that they gave up. So, um, of so, a lot of them came on the rush. So they're not included in this group. But 31 of them came kind of came in the offensive end off cycle cycle plays, and and that kind of thing. So 31 of, uh, excuse me, 33 of the 54. So this encompasses that. And we're looking at who was who the player who's charged in under the Oilers system, man-to-man system that they were playing. Who was the guy who ended up having the primary responsibility in the slot to cover that shooter? And who allowed that shot? Who allowed that dangerous shot on net in the cycle? And of those 33 shots that came off the cycle, so to speak, um, 19 times it was a centerman who gave up that grade A shot. And only 14 times was it a defenseman. So there's there's two defensemen out there. And there's just one center. Mm-hmm. But under the Oilers system, these mm-hmm. defensemen were getting pulled out to the side and into the corners and up top and everywhere. And it was the centers who usually filled in for them. And so it was 19 times these, these centers gave up grade A shots in the slot as opposed to 14 times for the defenders. So one of the problems, when you play the man-to-man, you're not you're counting on a center to cover, which is a big mm-hmm. read, which is a big ask for some of them, like who are offense first players. But it's a big ask in another way, because the defensemen, they've worked all of their lives on defensive play. Like that is their forte. That's why they're defensemen. They're really good at boxing out. They're good at lifting the stick. They're good at blocking shots. They're good at reading the play defensively. The centers are all just an order of magnitude, probably weaker at that kind of skill set, um, generally speaking, than the defensemen are. And this is why I think in a man-to-man system, when the breakdown happens, when you're going to get the, the worst, you know, the, the big shots against you, it's going to be the centers who are the weak link when, when you isolate a center in front mm-hmm. of the net. So of the 19 times, uh, the, the centers, it was who allowed grade A shots. It was Leon Dreisaitl seven times, Nick Butte's, Gugstad six times, Ryan McLeod five times, and Connor McDavid once. So there was one center on the Oilers who had the capability, um, who could read the game well enough, who could had the speed, who had the smarts, who had the commitment, who had the focus, all of those things um, to handle this system, to thrive in this system, and that was Connor McDavid. And the other centers they were unable to thrive in this system. They just, it was asking too much of them, Bruce. I, I don't, I'm not blaming these centers. I think this is asking too much of them the way the others are trying to play. Okay. So were you looking specifically at centers or were you looking at like F1? F1. In, yeah. Okay. So, so there was a couple there, Yamamoto. Like I, I didn't, right. it, it was pretty rare though, actually under the system, the owners were playing for the wingers mm-hmm. to be isolated in front. It happened a few times. Right. Um, but it was, I think, Yamamoto once, maybe Hyman once. But other mm-hmm. than that, it was it was generally the centers who were um, we we tagged them at the time in our own scoring chance uh, summary 
mm-hmm. grade A shot summary as the uh, as the player who gave up the shot or who missed the assignment. So it, it was very rare for a winger to make this kind of mistake because they were generally covering the points. Bearing in mind that um, Drysaddle was frequently playing the wing, even yes. though he was doing the trying to do or the switching. job down low, switching off down low with yeah. uh, with McDavid. So uh, there was sort of two centers on that line the way the way that we right. view it. So <clears throat> yeah, it's not always cut and dried. Sometimes I think they get in their own, each other's way a little bit in terms of and who's got the job. And yeah, who's doing what at the split second in time. We we've yeah. talked a lot about that. Yes, so oh, for years, some years we've talked. Yeah, about that. and I and I think that um, it's still an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still an issue, and uh, anyway, that was frustrating to watch. So <laughs> I, I might come a little cross a little hot here. Probably not unusual for me, but it was it was quite eye opening to watch these. Mm-hmm. So the last set of numbers, Bruce, is nine to zero. And a subset of this is four to zero. So uh, the, the thing that was most interesting was how many times an order defenseman was out above the, out of the inner slot area, out of the kill zone completely, not and not in the defensive corner. This this isn't counting when they're covering their own defensive corner. Um, but these this is the time they were up kind of above in the ringette line, so to speak, or. Right above the, the top of the face-off circles or, mm-hmm. or at least out of the scoring chance zone, the kill zone, mm-hmm. F- following a, a Vegas player out there. So these are the, the most glaring ones that got a lot of the attention, once with Nurse, once with CeCe. Um, DeHarnay did this, Akom. They were all in this kind of play. Yeah. How many times, as opposed to how many times a Vegas defenseman was way out there, out there, you know, in no man's land, so to speak, when the Oilers got a grade A shot. So this happened in this series. Of the 54 grade A shots it ha- that Vegas got, nine times this was this was seen. Of the 54 grade A shots, the Oilers got not once, not <laughs> once, was a Vegas Maybe. defenseman out there. Either defenseman. Play. Either defenseman. They got beat out of the corner sometimes, right. and they weren't in the slot. But other than that, Right. They were they were they were they were so disciplined these defensemen right. Bruce in mm-hmm. guarding the slot. It was their job one, mm-hmm. two, three, four, and five was guard the slot, guard the slot, guard the slot, and they did it. The Oilers' job defenseman was harass the puck carrier, get on your man, mm-hmm. stay with your man, stick to your man, mm-hmm. and this led to nine grade A shots against the Oilers and four goals against the orders as opposed to zero for Vegas. And in a, in a, in a series where the gap had even strengthened 16 to nine, four goals is a significant number. It's the difference between winning and losing. At least it's one it's of the, one, game. one of no, the major differences. Game, yeah. You know, I think the other ones, if I was to say the three, like I was asked this on orders now before I'd done this research this week, I would say the three reasons the orders lost are to me. And I'm are, are this their man to man defense. Weak goaltending, I think, is also an issue, and um, or below average goaltending, I think, mm-hmm. would be more fair. Below average goaltending and poor puck luck, because the Oilers did get a lot of grade A yes. shots. They got more grade A shots than Vegas did, largely due to special teams, and they didn't score. Um, mm-hmm. But this, this, I think, might be number one, and it was, and it's certainly the interesting thing about this one was. Goaltending is not necessarily, it's, you, you, you have the goal, two goaltenders. Sure, they may, might have gone with Campbell over Skinner, so that was a choice. 
puck luck is just puck luck. This was a choice. This was strategy. This is how you're aligning your team. And I just wonder if you had switched defensive strategies. I don't wonder, Bruce. If you had switched defensive strategies in this system, the Oilers would have won this game series in five games. Vegas would not, man to man, they would have been eaten alive. And if the Oilers had played a zone, I would love to see Darnell Nurse and Cody Cece in a zone. I just think they would, uh, they just would be s- super solid in a zone. Yeah, as opposed to these plays that we saw from time to time where you had uh, CC on one side boards above the hash marks and Nurse on the other side boards also above the hash marks and someone like Kyler Yamamoto guarding the slot against one of the big, fast-skilled Vegas forwards or LA forwards for that matter. And it's, it's not what you want. And you, when you talk about... the Forwards, their plays in around the net. I mean, a lot of these forwards have played most of their life that there's a certain place on the ice where they let their man through and the defenseman has them because the defensemen are behind them and they're guarding the slot behind them. And, they're, you know, their job is to cover the high slot, not the low slot. And the guy gets by him, he meets the next layer of defense. Well, if the next layer of defense is over by the boards or outside the blue line, maybe you got a little problem. And so, you know, if they're if they're going to insist on doing that, then they're going to have to insist on working that their centers or their F ones, taking it all the way hard right back to the right back to the goal line, you know, and on, on the defensive side. And it's still, you know, players that uh, you know, some can't, <laughs> I was going to say can't skate backwards, but you know, forwards have have considerably less of those kind of skills, whereas most defensemen have them pretty naturally, if standing up to a guy, c- controlling the gap, those sorts of things. And it's, uh, uh, it's, I, I agree with you, it has to change, and I'm fairly confident it will change. And there's, you know, between the feedback these guys are getting, they're analyzing their own tapes. And, uh, you know, yeah, I don't expect Woody or, or, or uh, Manson to be too light on themselves and say, well, that's just a player mistake. The system was good, but the players got crossed up or, you know, or, or uh, Darnell and Warren just got in each other's way there out at the blue line. And that's why White Cloud got a breakaway <laughs> from the blue yeah. line to the, yeah. the face off dot, uh, what have you. The system, they have to give it a good, hard look and, uh, Boring as the collapse everybody in front of the net system is, there's a reason a lot of teams do it. And uh, you don't, like it stands out to me when an order defense, when you did, you did something similar with uh, plays off of face-offs earlier yeah. this year, when they were getting yeah. crushed for a goal with, you know, within seven seconds of a face-off over and over again. And it was the same damn thing, defensemen chasing guys away from their zone and you know, leaving the Same side strategy. of the net open for an easy rebound or deflection or something. And and it was D-men chasing. It was the same general theme, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the same strategy. It's man-to-man, right? So mm-hmm. so let's speak of the, like, I used to watch a lot of basketball, college mm-hmm. basketball. And this was a constant debate in baseball, the 70s, right? 80s, 90s. I watched baseball until the Expos left Montreal. <laughs> ah, I said, fair. That is baseball. fair. I I'm done that. with, I am done with baseball. Except anyway, um, the, um, and then the steroid thing too. Uh, but uh, 
in basketball, there was always a huge debate between should you play a zone or man-to-man? And some coaches swore by man-to-man. Like, they just thought it was, like, it was their religion. And the other coach, it was his religion to play a zone. Right. So I don't know how religious the orders are about man-to-man. I think it's kind of highly unusual. And I, so here's what I don't here's what I don't know right now. I don't mm-hmm. know how committed they are to this system. But I also don't know how unusual this particular system was to the NHL right now. Like how many other teams are as extreme man-to-man as the Oilers were? And um, I don't think I – like it did – I think it was striking everybody as odd though how often we would see these defensemen out of position. It, it started to hit people over the head like just fans mm-hmm. – Repeatedly, mm-hmm. so I think the orders that were actually on a fairly extreme edge of. Mm-hmm. And here's what I would say about the strategy for this particular team. I can see the advantages because you, what you're trying to, you're on them. You're trying to pop pucks. You're 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 teaching aggressiveness. You're teaching responsibility. Like, be responsible. Make the play. Like, uh, there's a lot of things to like about man to man. About the attitude that it creates. Mm-hmm. About the aggressiveness it creates. And about the ability to to win that puck, get that puck off guys and get it out of your zone. So there's, there are all those things that work in favor of it. But I'm going to say for this particular team, I think it was the worst strategy that you could have in terms of defensive play. I think a zone, when you're looking at the personnel of the Edmonton Oilers and the number of really great offensive players who aren't necessarily as great defensively, maybe you want to raise them up defensively. But you're asking them to do, you are asking these guys to do way too much out of their comfort zone and out of what they're naturally good at. And I think you'd have far more success having those defensemen do what they're really good at, focusing on their strength, building on their strength, and then building on the strength of the forwards. Yeah, you do need them in a zone to be, to come and cover the, you know, as the, as the third or fourth attacker comes in, you got to be there. I think you can do that, but to have them so often as the primary defender in front of the net, I I don't think that's that that wasn't the best idea at all, and um, I think we got the result partly because of that. Yeah, well, certainly there were highlight plays, and some of them did, as you also noted, um, feature a bounce of the puck. Um, but if you have a puck bouncing to an area that's covered versus not covered, <laughs> yes. I know which situation I'd rather have as the attacking team. Let's put it that way. And and there was um, there was just some odd, you know, chase them. How far are you going to chase the guy? Right, all the way to the players' bench. Oh, you know, I mean, there's a certain point yes. where you know, guarding your your territory in tight to the net from a D-man's point of view is way more valuable than chasing some some one guy out to kingdom come and he beats you with a pass and then you're nowhere you're completely out of the play i'm going to suggest bruce that this system crossed the line when darnell nurse crossed the line on the white cloud goal that's when everyone went crazy right the yeah. second darnell yeah, well, nurse you chased couldn't miss, you couldn't miss riley smith one. out over the blue line mm-hmm. as white cloud was steaming in it's like everyone oiler fans like you don't have to be mm-hmm. a hockey expert to realize like what yeah. the f, yeah. what the Friday is going mm-hmm. on in that moment. What what mm-hmm. is happening here? And anyway, this is what I think what was happening, and it, it, it's I think it's easily correctable. Like well, it's changeable. So. Yeah, yeah. But when your left wing and left defenseman are in each other's way at the blue line, 
all of a sudden there's a big hole down the left side of your defense, which Zach Whitecloud certainly exploited on that play. And it just, there was just too many of those. Uh, yeah, the tying goal in mm-hmm. game t- in game six was the same play. Mm-hmm. Eichel's got the puck, and he makes a back pass to the blue to the defenseman, and and it, it, so it gives the defenseman time to make a play. Yamamoto's blocked out in that case mm-hmm. by Eichel himself, and mm-hmm. CC's up there too, and and um, uh, Theodore puts the puck quickly on net, bounces off Nurse, goes to Marcheseau, goal. Right. Because Leon Dreisaitl hasn't gotten back quick enough. And after the game, Leon Dreisaitl is blaming himself for mm-hmm. losing the series, for not playing well enough, and feeling bad about what happened. Yeah, well, well, we all felt bad about what happened, but uh, there was more to blame than just that. Anyway, I'm still, I remain upbeat about the coaching staff. Uh, I do think they've got, they've got lessons to learn, and they were top one in that series. And I think they're smart enough to learn that lesson and come back uh, 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 stronger. Uh, next year, uh, to me, they're you know they're they're where um, Jay Woodcock's where John Cooper was in about 2013 or 14. You know, I, he's... I'm yeah, I agree. I think this is a coach who who learns. Yeah, I, and, and listen, this is a coach who seems to be very good with the players, a very yes. good teaching coach yes. who's raised up any number of uh, young players now and has helped mm-hmm. their games, helped their games along, and they've improved under him who's been able to integrate a number of younger players into the lineup and um, who helped develop the best power play the, the NHL's ever seen. Um, um, this this coaching staff has a lot of strengths. Yes. And uh, in terms of um, they're they're good with their their mm-hmm. they're good with the media, they're good communicating with the fans. Mm-hmm. I think they're good communicating with the players. I think the players I get the sense that the players love being on this team and love playing for these coaches. Right. So um, there's all that. So this is just this is this is a mistake that happened, and and we'll see. I'm going to wait it now keenly to see if they correct this and how they correct it, because that's going to be really right. interesting to see. Are they going to go? How like Vegas? I think might have had a fairly radical zone, a very like a you know we don't yeah. we don't know, but I don't know enough about this. That's stacked high low defense pairing. Yeah, you know that's Let's, yeah. So what are they going to do? Are they just going to copy Vegas? Hey, maybe that's the best plan. Like mm-hmm. imitation yeah, well, is this sincerest form of flattery, and uh, maybe it's time to flatter Cassidy and copy his system and see how that goes right. for. They got little... two problems. They have to figure out how to stop Vegas, and they have to figure out how to beat Vegas at the other end. And if they use Vegas's defensive system, you know, or not, but they need to learn how to how to attack against that system. So there's sort of two distinct problems. That but, is a really hard problem how to attack yeah. it yeah well, I about five that. alarm shots in six games tells me they weren't very successful and i got to say i came out of that series with a huge amount of respect for bruce cassidy and yeah. he'd, he'd done a good job in boston for uh, a number of years but you know other conference whereas this is uh, right in a division when you see a guy's team play six games in a row uh and you know gradually uh, emerge and come out on top um, part of it was tactics and system, and uh, Vegas won that, no question. But, uh, Vegas, uh, Cassidy got the better of Woodcroft. I got plenty of respect for for Woodcroft, so uh, uh, for Cassidy, uh, ditto. Did a great job. Looks like he's about to win the Stanley Cup, doesn't it? Sure does. 
And congratulations to the coach who came up with that. I mean, it's like he's they're doing a lot right in Vegas, obviously, yeah. tactically. They've got yeah. a they've got a system that that works for this this team, which isn't which is a talented team, but it's not the most talented team in the NHL. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, defending like I I really do think players like Ekholm, Bouchard, Nurse, CC, these guys can all I don't I, I think they can thrive in a zone system. Where mm-hmm. where they're asked to protect the front of the net, I have no doubt Darnell Nurse will be will be outstanding in that, and Cody Cece. I think it really suits Cody Cece, who then won't be asked to be skating around as much with a bad groin, chasing into the corner, chasing chasing everywhere. Ones. This could really work for the Oilers mm-hmm. if they they change this up, and I think it's going to work for 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 McLeod and Drysaddle and and uh, the mm-hmm. other centers as well. Attacking mm-hmm. it, Bruce. Like I, mm-hmm. what do you? What do you, when they really pack it in like that, that's really like one solution is to have a shooter like Evan Bouchard, mm-hmm. who who you you attack the zone and then you put it back out to the point for a wide open shot, and you mm-hmm. fire it into the net. Now that's a good strategy. Mm-hmm. That might. I mean, how do you attack a zone in basketball? <clears throat> is with outside shooting. Right. You need your outside shooters to rip apart right. the zone. Yes. To force them out, you have to. So that's. In basketball, which is a different game, that's right. the strategy. I don't know if does that work in hockey uh, against the zone. Californian, uh, that's a big weapon. Might be against the just... zone, against the zone, against the five-man collapse. You just fire away and get it past the front man, and then hope for a, a screen goalie, a bounce off of either team to a rebound. It's you know. But uh, that's, uh, unfortunately, that's not the most thrilling kind of hockey to watch or a goal to be scored. But uh, that's, you know, one of the ways the game's going. By the way, your your comparison to basketball and college basketball is, was uh, on point because in pro basketball, it's been many, many, many years since they banished the zone so. defense. And it's only man-to-man because the zone was too efficient. So... Not and, saying there's yeah. anything to learn in hockey from that, but basketball learned that lesson 50 or more years ago that they did away with any kind of zone defense. Well, to the point where they had to make the outside shots worth three points. Yes. To open up the game. That changed the game. That was yeah. revolutionary. So maybe there's going to be, if you score from outside this area in the NHL, you get two goals. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Get those uh, Californians to really ramp up more of them Californians that we love so much. It is a hideous style of hockey, like to to watch, but if it, it is so effective, and and I do think the orders are going to change. I mean, we've mm-hmm. heard um, in the last few weeks on the radio, Bob Stoffer has been talking about this quite a bit, you know, and Bob, who is as connected as anyone to the organization that there is, you know, and he's well, been talking about yeah. how effective zone defense is. Mm-hmm. So I do, you know, from that reading the tea leaves. Um, as I often do from Bob's comments, I just I think something's something's going to change here. The Oilers know this was an issue and they're going to fix it. I, I, that's that's my belief. But uh, the sooner the better. All right, right have we beat that to death for today? Yeah, well, it needs a bit of uh, of examination and uh, and uh, uh, scrutiny after the fact. You know, a retroactive uh, look at what. Went wrong. You got. I mean, that has to be dealt with on on plain terms. Like I say, I'm confident that uh, Woodcroft and and his uh, assistants will uh, uh, take it on without any sort of self 
flattery and you know saying our system is good the players are wrong for it though i think they'll adapt their system to what their players are not wrong for and uh, uh that's that's their big test in 23 24. i think the players have taken enough heat i know darnell nurse and cc have i think they've been hung out to dry a little bit on this mm-hmm. um frankly and and blamed a bit too much for executing the game plan so I'm. I think it's fair to just to try to understand what went what went on, and yeah, it'll be um, it'll be interesting. It's it's different because last year when they lost to the Avs, the Avs were clearly the higher talent team, and um, this year the Oilers I think were the higher talent team. That was seen mm-hmm. in their n- greater number of grade A shots overall against Vegas, but Vegas found a way to win. Yeah. And uh, this is a big part of it. Bruce, let's leave it there. Thanks for talking today. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>